We are continuing together our Sunday School lesson in our book, From the Garden of Eden to the Glory of Heaven, and we are in chapter 15, which um, is bringing our study uh, pretty quickly to a conclusion. The title of the chapter is From Faith to Sight. And of course, right now, we live by faith, we walk by faith, uh, we trust God for things that are unseen. Uh, indeed, God himself is unseen. And all of his promises uh, regarding the new heavens and the new earth and uh, complete redemption from sin and the complete destruction of Satan, all of those things are yet unseen. And so because of that, we have to simply trust when we cannot observe. But there's coming a day when we will observe all of the victory that Jesus has secured for us and our faith will be turned into sight. Now... Previously, we said that the new covenant began to be fulfilled in the life and the ministry of Jesus while he was here on this earth. He came to establish the new covenant. He did, in fact, do that. And his earthly ministry was the beginning of the fulfillment of the implementation of all the promises of the new covenant. So his earthly ministry inaugurated the fulfillment of the new covenant. And what we see Jesus doing while he was here on this earth is beginning to roll back the effects of the curse. And we see this in particular in his healing ministry. Uh, the effects of the fall were being reversed all across the spectrum of those effects. And so we see that the lame were healed and the blind saw and the deaf heard and um, the dead were raised. And what is all of that? All that sin and all, pardon me, all that sickness and uh, all that death was a result of sin. Jesus came and he began to uh, reverse the effects of sin through his miracles and through his healings and through the resurrections that he did. Now, the reason why he did all of that is to say, look, I have the power to undo the effects of the fall. Here is the proof. And one of the reasons why we see him doing so many healings is because sickness and death is a result of the curse. And um, by reversing sickness and reversing death, he's saying to us in so many words, I am overcoming uh, the effects of the fall. Now, what Jesus came to do is he came to do battle with the devil and win. When Adam did battle with the devil, he lost. And that's the reason why the human race was plunged into so much misery. But when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, you remember the 40 days, the three times Satan tempted him, each time he triumphed. And ultimately, Satan had to flee away from him. And every time Jesus confronted any kind of demonic power, he always defeated it. There was no demon he could not cast out. There was no effect that demons wrought in people's lives that he did not triumph over. But the major evidence for Jesus having defeated Satan on the cross and having bound him is the fact that Satan can no longer deceive the nations and keep them in blindness and darkness. And now the gospel is being spread over the whole world. Um, you'll recall that up until the time that Jesus came and the Great Commission was issued, 
the gospel was virtually confined to Palestine, to Israel. And people in Africa and people in Japan and people in North America and South America and everywhere else, uh, the gospel didn't go to them. And uh, they were kept under darkness and blindness by Satan for thousands of years. But then when Jesus came and he bound the strong man, he defeated Satan. Now the nations are undeceived and they are open to and able to hear and receive uh, the gospel. And so until Christ came, the salvation of sinners was largely confined to a remnant within one nation, Israel. And the rest of the nations remained under the deception of the enemy. But with his being bound under the new covenant, Satan is no longer allowed to deceive all the nations. Now, we looked at a couple of passages last time in order to demonstrate the fact that at the cross, Jesus defeated Satan. And so we looked at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15. And we also looked at Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. And in both of these passages, we saw both a condensed and an extended description of the fact that Christ has defeated Satan and that he did so at the cross. There's two other verses we didn't look at last time that I want to look at today. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2, the book of Hebrews, the second chapter. Here we have a description of one of the reasons for, and I might say a primary reason for, uh, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 2 and verse 14, it says, For as much then as the children, that is God's elect, are partakers of flesh and blood, that's what you and I have as flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, also himself likewise took part of the same. He took flesh, he took blood in the incarnation. When he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he received a human nature of flesh and blood. Why did he do that? So that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And so by the death of Christ on the cross, and the reason why he could die on the cross is because he had a human body. God can't die. Only people can die. And so uh, Satan died, strike that. Jesus died on the cross. And through that death, uh, he defeated and destroyed uh, Satan and his work. Um, the second verse we want to look at is 1 John 3.8, which is our memory verse today. The book of 1 John, chapter 3, and verse 8. <clears throat> it says, He that committeth sin, 1 John 3, 8, is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. Here it is. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So why did Satan come? He came to destroy the devil. He came to defeat the works of the devil. And um, he did all that through the cross and through his resurrection. So by the cross and by the resurrection, Jesus secured and bore testimony to the fact that he had defeated Satan. And so sin and Satan and death have all been defeated by the Lord. 
Now, last time we read Revelation chapter 12, I want us to turn there again uh, and pick up a particular passage there that's going to um, give us uh, some guidance as to why we're experiencing then what we are today. Revelation chapter 12. Now, what we have here is a synopsis of the sending of Jesus, the saving work of Jesus, the defeat of Satan, his casting out of heaven. And notice, if you will, verse 12, he, uh, Revelation 12, 12. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. And so what has happened is at the cross, Jesus defeated Satan. And as a result of the application of the saving work of Jesus, Satan was cast out of heaven and down to the earth. And so he's here. And he is a defeated uh, enemy. It says here that, um, verse 11, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And so he was cast out of Satan. Pardon me, he was cast out of heaven, verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, uh, which deceives the whole world. He was cast into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So as we see him appearing in heaven in the book of Job chapter 1, he doesn't appear there anymore. No longer does he appear in heaven as the accuser of the brethren because Christ has uh, removed all grounds of accusation. So what is Satan doing now? Well, he's a defeated enemy. He's an angry enemy. And as a result, he's pouring out that anger upon God's people who are still on this earth. And so the present persecutions that Christians experience here and now in this world are the evidence of a raging, defeated enemy who's extremely angry, who knows he only has a short time before he is forever condemned to the pit of hell, into the lake of fire. And so as long as he has some degree of, of mobility and activity, uh, of, of action, he is going to continue to attack the people of God. Now notice verse 13, Revelation 12, 13. When the dragon saw he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man child. And so as we look over the earth for the last 2,000 years, we've seen the severe persecutions that have been brought against the people of God. That's the result of an enraged and defeated enemy who's constantly trying to destroy the people of God. And so Christians are persecuted and despised. Churches are burned. Christians are imprisoned and killed. Um, they are reviled. Um, and Jesus told us that we needed to expect this kind of treatment and not be surprised by it because what we have are the death throes of Satan being poured out upon the church. Now, Satan knows that his time is short. 
And so he's doing everything he can to impede the work of Christ. And Jesus warned us about this. The apostles warned us about this. And they said to us, look, you must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. They said that we should not count it a strange thing that these fiery trials come upon us. Paul told Timothy, he says, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We're told to put on the whole armor of God because Satan is doing what? Throwing his fiery darts at us. And so uh, there's this language of constant persecution and constant warfare that is being um, expressed against the people of God. Now, turn please in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. The Gospel of John, chapter 16. He says in John chapter 16, verse 1, These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time comes that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father or me. These things have I told you that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning because I was with you. So we have, for example, the Muslims in our day and age who think they're doing Allah. They think they're doing God's service by killing Christians. In Paul's time, you remember Saul of Tarsus thought he was doing God's service by killing Christians. When they stoned Stephen together to death. In Acts chapter 7, they thought they were doing God service. And so Jesus predicted that we would be persecuted. And one of the reasons why he allows that persecution is simply to um, make clear who his people are and who they are not. And in the process of this persecution, those who are false Christians always go away from the faith. Those who are true Christians always deepen and strengthen their faith. So the point is, is that tribulation and persecution are hallmarks of the church's present experience. They remind us we're not yet home. They remind us we're still on the battlefield. We're still in a foreign country. We're still pilgrims and sojourners and soldiers and uh, we have to fight the good fight of faith all the days of our life against those three great enemies, uh, Satan and the world whom Satan empowers, and of course the flesh which is uh, within us that we still uh, struggle with as, as part of our unredeemed nature. And so Satan inspires the world and Satan tempts the flesh and the result is, is that we have tremendous battles. Now, what's been going on these last 2,000 years? Why didn't Jesus just end it at the resurrection and cast Satan into the lake of fire and bring in the new heavens and the new earth at that point in time and be done with it? Uh, why this protracted period 
of ongoing warfare with a defeated enemy? Well, the reason why is because Christ is building his church. Had he brought this whole thing to a consummation uh, in the first century, you and I wouldn't exist and you and I wouldn't be saved and neither would millions and millions and millions of other people. So the purpose for this time uh, between the first and the second coming, the purpose for the delay in the full implementation of the defeat of Satan, though his defeat has been secured, it hasn't been fully implemented, is for the purpose of building his church and preparing his church for the kingdom of heaven. And so uh, when Jesus died on the cross, God promised to him um, a large number of people as a reward for his redemptive work. These people make up his church, they make up his bride, and uh, God is, ha has a very generous body of people that he's giving to his son. And so when the last elect person is finally saved, at that point in time, uh, the work of redemption in terms of his application will be completed, and the Lord Jesus Christ will come back to this earth. And so, for example, turn please in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Pardon me, 2 Peter chapter 3. The third chapter. <clears throat> Second Peter chapter 3, the second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. So we read in the Old Testament, we read in the New Testament, uh, the warnings that in the last days, that is the time period between the first and the second coming of Christ, that the delay of that coming, that is the length of time between the first and second coming, is going to cause people to mock and scoff at the notion that Jesus will ever come back. And basically, at this point in history, people are saying, look, it's been 2,000 years since he came. He's not ever coming back again. And uh, this kind of thinking was predicted. Um, verse 5, uh, For this they, that is the scoffers, are willingly ignorant of, that there was a previous judgment, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. And so what they're saying is, look, in the past, God brought a worldwide judgment on this earth. And he's going to bring a worldwide judgment again. He's done it once, he's going to do it again. There's already precedent for it. And they're ignoring his previous track record of bringing worldwide judgment. Verse 7. But the heaven and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So the second worldwide judgment is not going to be with water. It's going to be with fire. And in the way covenant, God promised he wouldn't use water again. Verse 8. 
But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. In other words, time frames uh, are not of significance to God. They shouldn't be of concern to us. God gets his work done over periods of thousands of years. And the fact that he takes that length of time to accomplish his purposes shouldn't alarm us because um, God is not um, bound by certain schedules and timetables uh, that we think uh, constitute an excessively long period of time. Uh, to him, the time is, is really meaningless. And so <clears throat> he says in verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. His promise to what? To reserve unto fire the world against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. That's what? The promise of worldwide judgment. He's not slack concerning that promise. But, it says, uh, is long-suffering toward us. That is, he's being patient for our sakes. Why? Because he's not willing that any of us that is, the elect should perish, but that all of us, the elect, should come to repentance. So God has a specific group of people in view, and that group of people he has in view is the us of Peter and the people to whom he's writing. Now, who are the people to whom he's writing? Is he writing to a bunch of unsaved people? He isn't. He's writing to believers. Okay? If you um, go back... And look at verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So in 3.9 when he says um, God is uh, long-suffering toward us, the us he's referring to there is those who are saved, those who are going to be saved. And so he's waiting until the full number of them come in uh, and they come to repentance. And then, verse 10, when that occurs, it says, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy manner of life and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent, that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. An account that the long-suffering or the patience of the Lord is salvation or is for the purpose of salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, has written unto you. So Paul says, you know, that day is not going to come for a long time until certain events occur. And Peter's saying, this second coming isn't going to occur until God has saved all of the people that he has determined to save. So the whole purpose of this long period of delay, this allowing of Satan to persecute his people, is for the purpose of bringing in his elect. It's for the purpose of purifying and strengthening uh, his church so that when the day comes that Jesus returns, that we will be 
a complete and finished and holy church. Now, what we need to understand is that God's purpose during this age is not to make us happy. It's not to make us rich. It's not to make our life easy and pleasant. His purpose in this age is to make us holy. It's to make us like his son. Because the good that he's working all things together for in our lives is that we would be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's working in the lives of his people individually. He's working in the lives of his people corporately to make them into a beautiful companion for his son. And beauty in the eyes of God is holiness. And what he's doing is he's purifying his church in doctrine. He's purifying his church in practice so that on the day of Christ's return, we will be a perfect bride, we'll be without spot, we'll be without wrinkle, and we'll be holy and without blame in every respect. And so notice, if you will, Ephesians chapter 5, the book of Ephesians, the fifth chapter. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Ephesians 5, 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, why did he give himself for the church? Here's the reason why, verse 26. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives, etc. And so the point is, is that Jesus is in the process of preparing his bride. And part of the process of preparing his bride is allowing time to go on until the full number of Christians is brought in and allowing persecution to go on so that those Christians can be purified and made more holy than they would be if they had health and wealth and ease and everything was just all the way it ought to be, according to our judgment. Um, It says regarding Jesus himself uh, in the book of Hebrews that uh, the Son of God was, was brought to maturity through sufferings. And if he was brought to maturity through sufferings, then we certainly shouldn't expect that we would uh, be able to escape them. It says in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 5, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So the maturing process of Jesus Christ growing up from an infant to a mature man of God involved a great deal of suffering in his life. Even though he had no sin himself, yet nevertheless, as a man in a fallen body, living in a fallen world, he had to go through sufferings himself in order to gain that maturity that fitted him to be our redeemer. And so if he went through it as a sinless person, then certainly we would expect that as sinful people, we need to go through it as well. But 
The good news is that's coming to an end. The good news is, is that when the end of this age has come, God is going to remake us. He's going to remake the new heavens. He's going to remake the heavens and the earth into a new heavens and a new earth. Our fallen bodies will be resurrected to a new body. This corruptible body will have put on incorruption and everything will be cleansed and Satan and his people will be eradicated from the face of the new heavens and the new earth. They will be consigned to hell where they will be contained in eternal conscious suffering there. And in that day, uh, all things will be made new. And so it says in 2 Peter 3 and in verse 10, which we just read, that uh, the day of the Lord is going to come in which um, the earth and the works that are therein will be burned up. And so the good news is, is that um, this period of suffering, this period of the building of the church and the purifying of the church has a conclusion and will be brought to an end uh, when God sees that it's complete and when he sends his son the second time. Now let's turn, please, in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, um, we see uh, the nature of this second coming and the tremendous blessing uh, that it brings to the people of God. Pardon me, that's 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul and Silvanius and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're bound to thank God always for your brethren as it is fitting because now notice, notice here, because your faith grows exceedingly and the charity or the love of every one of you all toward each other abounds. So you think, wow, this is great. These people are growing in faith. They're growing in love. They're making this huge progress. Well, guess what context they're making that huge progress in? In a context of severe persecution. Now notice verse 4. So that we ourselves glory in you and the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations which you endure. Now, verse 3 and verse 4 go together, people. And if we're going to be growing in faith, and we're going to be growing in love, it's going to be accomplished in a context of persecutions and tribulations. So don't count some strange thing when persecutions and tribulations come into your life. Those are God's tools to shape you into a person of greater faith and greater love. However, that process has an end. It says, <clears throat> verse 5, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. What do you do for the kingdom of God? You suffer for it. You suffer for being in it, and you suffer for upholding it, defending it, and propagating it. But what's God going to do? Verse 6 seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation 
to those that trouble you. Christ is going to bring judgment on everyone who has persecuted you and created trouble for you. Verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. That is, the trouble is coming to an end. We're going to be able to rest from it. When? When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know whether someone is saved or not? Well, one of the ways we know is, do they persecute the people of God or not? And very clearly, those who trouble Christians are those who know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the way you can tell whether someone is a Christian or not is do they extend comfort to the people of God or do they extend trouble to the people of God? And it doesn't matter if they claim to be Christians. The question is, is do they persecute them? Verse 9, they shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe. And so the point is, is that the new covenant is ultimately going to be finally fulfilled and completed when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and when uh, he brings vengeance upon all of those who have persecuted his church, namely Satan and all of his people. And so we struggle against sin, we struggle against Satan, we struggle against Satan's people. There's coming a day when the Lord Jesus will return and he will deliver us from them all and he will bring all of his wrath to bear upon them who brought their wrath upon us. And so the day will come then in which there will be the complete eradication and deliverance from sin. Well, our time is gone. We will stop here and pick up where we left off next time. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that Satan's work is all being defeated and destroyed. Thank you, Father, that that defeat and that destruction was secured by Jesus' victory on the cross. And thank you that it's being implemented over time as, as Jesus goes into Satan's kingdom and ravages it and takes to himself whomever he wills and brings them into his own kingdom and makes them his own children. And that he will protect them and defend them until the day when he completely delivers them from Satan and never again will he trouble them. Thank you that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and all the effects of it. Thank you, Father, that he came to secure complete deliverance for his people. So help us then, Father, not to count it a strange thing that we do suffer persecution now. Father, it is for our edification and our purification. And Father, we thank you for the sufferings you bring into our lives. We know that you do not afflict your people willingly. Uh, there is no sadistic streak in you or attitude of indifference. Um, in all of our afflictions, you are afflicted. Uh, Father, we thank you that Jesus um, will bring vengeance upon the wicked. Until then, Father, through their wickedness, may we grow in faith and may we grow in love. 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.